All right, this is the Yay, I'm Reg Clay. And Norman G. This is the Yay, where we talk about life in the theater and the theater of life. Yay! <laughs> As always, we are sponsored by Central Works, a new play theater, headed up by Gary Graves and Jan Zleifler. Central Works, reinventing theater one play at a time. And we want to thank Central Works for sponsoring us, especially a very tumultuous 2021, where uh, I was reading an article that they said that, well, you know, if you are vaccinated and, and you've gotten the Omicron virus, it's not that bad because it won't be transmittable or whatever. I'm like, okay, so if I have it, that's bad, but I won't transmit it, that's good. I, I don't even know what to think Oh, anymore. no, I hadn't heard that. Yeah, it's crazy. So it, if you've got the virus, it doesn't transmit as easily? If you're vaccinated. I mean, if you've, yeah. got, if you've got the vaccination, the virus doesn't, the right. Omicron doesn't, trans, okay. Exactly. And I'll talk more Good. about that, but let's introduce our very special guest, a guest that uh, is just amazing, Julian Lopez uh, Maris. Is that uh, the correct way to spell your last Lopez, name? Lopez Morillas. Morillas, yes. Mm -hmm. And you are, let me, I've got this, I was doing a little bit of research when uh, Norman introduced you. Um, not just a veteran actor that has graced the stage of ACT, Berkeley Rep, the San Diego Rep, Theater Works, the Magic Theater, and the Traveling Jewish Theater, among others, but you're also a living repository of Shakespearean history. Oh, hell yeah. Having taught at Solano College, San Diego State, Foothill College, Mills College, and UC Berkeley, and I'm sure many, many more. Uh, San Jose State also. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Just amazing. We're so happy to have you. How are you doing today? Doing well. <laughs> Wonderful. And you and Norman, you just guys just finished doing we Great Expectations. We just finished Great Expectations. We just closed it last Sunday, mm -hmm. a, a very demanding show for six actors playing, mm -hmm. oh, my Lord, uh, you know, 25 characters among us. Uh, kept us all very busy. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Norman, you were saying it was very emotional, I guess, at the very end, closing. Well, I was saying that some of the actors were having that typical emotional thing, um, you know, oh my God, we're going to end, we're going to lose each other. And I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> if you've been doing it for a while, you don't lose each other. We just, we just spread out for a little while and then we come back together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But More? yeah, we, we will say goodbye to this story and we did a nice job of putting the story together. So let's take the credit and mm -hmm. you know, yeah. move on. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of the things, we always talk about theater as a sort of a community thing. I mean, it is a job for those who consider it as a job. You know, you want to make sure you get paid and you get compensated and you get the exposure that you need so you can further your career. But you bond with people, you know, you have these, um, these beats, which aren't just beats on a piece of paper and you do it on stage, but you connect with people, you connect with your, uh, your uh, fellow artists. Oh, yeah. Who are on stage with you and... Um, and that just doesn't end when the uh, curtain closes. So it's yeah. awesome. Even though s half the cast is like, well, is it half even? There's South Bay people. <laughs> and then you, well, you're practically North Bay people. <laughs> yeah, actually four of us are from <laughs> Oakland and North in the East Bay. So uh, there was a lot of driving involved. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. I won't miss that. So, um, as I begin uh, every podcast, uh, how was your week and how do you feel? I mean, this will be our last podcast of 2021. What? How do you feel? We're not uh, doing one next week? <laughs> do you have a guest? <laughs> I, let's find a guest. Okay. I would love to do an end of the year one. That would be great. We'll start this. This is part one, end of the year. Um, my calendar was so empty this week. I was like, I'm not, I'm itchy. I'm not getting on the road before the sun goes down to get to San Jose today. I've, it's been wild. 
Um, the most recent thing is we've had no hot water. In fact, oh. if I get a phone call, I will sure. jump. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, we're not live, so, you know. We'll to tell PG&E that. That's I, funny because uh, our house had no heat most much of last week. Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, and so I called them, and they said, well, send somebody out. And then it got to be evening, and I had to go. Mara was playing mm. last night, so I had to get. So I call in, and it's all automated. You can't talk to somebody. Yeah, and I it hate says, that. Yeah. The next date would be um, Wednesday. Oh, and I'm like, no. And they said, if you don't have hot water, the next date you can get a 12-hour window mm. tomorrow. Yeah. Like, yes, that's what we want. But why, why are things cut off? I mean, is it? Don't know. <clears throat> don't know. Just woke up, and there's no hot water. Oh, so, I could not deal with that at all. Oh, believe me, we've got a pot of water <coughs> on the stove. <laughs> and that's what we both washed up in today. You know, it's funny. I was—I mean, I have a friend of mine, a uh, correspondent in Kyrgyzstan, and you can't get further than that. And we talked about just old school and how our parents or grandparents were mm-hmm. raised and how we're, we're, we're spoiled. You know, mm-hmm. we have all these, you know, things, and especially the millennial generation, how they don't. Hardly, they don't even type anymore or write anymore. And I talk right. about my grandmother, you know, having to grow up on the farm. And if you wanted a bath, you had to, you know, take the water, boil it, and then, you know, put it in the pot and all that sort of stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, Mara made a joke about it. And I'm like, you know, back in the good old days, you know, gosh, aren't you nostalgic for that time when you had to go down <laughs> to the creek and get some water to, and then make a fire and... Ju- Julian, did your uh, parents, did you hear stories about that? <laughs> Yeah, I guess we heard stories about it. Uh, my my father grew up in a, a small town in southern Spain, oh. uh, and I eventually got to know his his family there. Um, he um, he was one of a number of children, uh, but several of them either were stillborn or died young. Wow! Yeah. Uh, and he and one brother, uh, sorry, two brothers and one sister survived to uh, uh, to full age. Um, so I have a, a bunch of uh, Spanish cousins, but uh, Spain has changed a lot over yeah, the last yeah. 70 or 80 years. Um, it, things were pretty primitive when I first went there in 1950, when I was three years old. Um, but uh, it's a it's a very uh, modern European democracy now. Yeah, yeah. when I think of Spain, this was, this was in the age of Franco, of course. Uh, oh, I was just about to mention that. Yeah. I th- every time I think of Spain during that time, of course, the fifties. It was after I guess it was twenty years after the Spanish Revolution. But I think of Civil that one, War. Yeah. Civil War. I'm sorry about that. But yeah, the uh, yeah. the famous. Um, Oh, uh, Picasso painting. Yes. Uh, Ger- yeah. Guernica, it's pronounced. Yeah. Guernica. Which yeah. is about the bombing of a, a small Basque town yeah. uh, by the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, at the invitation of Franco in, I think, 1936. Yeah, mm. to go against the Spanish resistance who were against Franco's regime. Yeah, Just so, yeah. Yeah, I'd love well, to. Well, actually, they were trying to preserve the current government, which was a democracy, Yeah, uh, a republic which had succeeded the monarchy. and uh, Yeah, and Franco wanted and to do things his way. Exactly yeah. so, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then Franco's uh, 
Franco's dictatorship lasted all through the 40s, all through the 50s, all through the 60s, mm-hmm. until he finally died in about 1975. I remember SNL used to make jokes about him being Francisco still Franco dead. is still dead, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow, it's amazing how, especially all, during that time, before World War II, during World War II, after World War II, the one individual who would survive with a dictatorship yeah, would course. be Franco. That's, yeah. that's amazing. Oh, there's way too many of them surviving <laughs> right now. Yeah, Jeez. but in a Europe, it's rather strange because you would think after the war, a lot of those regimes would be pushed away. Yeah, there was Salazar in Portugal, too, at the same time, who mm. was uh, also a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. but most of the European countries, gradually, one, one by one, they turned back to democracy. Thankfully. Yeah. Speaking of democracy or the threat of, <laughs> of having democracy taken away, oh, yes. <laughs> there, are, there are some current events uh, going on. I think of that Ron DeSanto. He's the uh, mayor. mayor. I'm sorry. Florida. I'm sorry. Uh, the uh, governor, governor of Florida. He has the Stop, Wo- Stop Woke Act. Have you heard about this? I've heard of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's trying to prevent critical race theory from being taught in schools. Uh, which it isn't being, of course. <laughs> but but along with woke and, you know, I, I remember liberal being made a dirty word on, in the back in the George W. H.W. Bush years, yeah. you know. Right. Uh, they they just love to find some little phrase they can beat the left over the head with and sure. run it into the ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's it's part of the Republican playbook to you know to just attack, 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 and it's uh, it's just one one more thing. Um, it's all they have to offer. Yeah. Um, Biden, uh, through the FDA, has removed restrictions for the abortion pill. So if you want to get the abortion pill, you can have it mailed to you. I think this is wonderful Good news. news. Yeah. Well, the, the other great Biden news this week, um, they, uh, court just said, no, your mandate mm-hmm. that uh, businesses have to require people to get vaccinated. Exactly. So yeah. it's on its way to the Supreme Court. We will see if the Supreme Court decides whether or not we should just die. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Omicron is very, we were just talking about that before we got off on the mic, where um, it's it's getting scary in Europe. I mean, I, you know, I read a report that there were some uh, Kaiser doctors and uh, physicians who did have the Omicron virus, but they weren't spreading it. So mm-hmm. that's good news. If you're fully vaccinated, then you can be protected from Omicron. I, I- I recommend everybody look it up and make sure that you get the information for yourself. Exactly, exactly. There's please, so much crazy information. <coughs> yeah, by all means, days. please get vaccinated. I've been vaccinated. I have. The, I talked about the Vax Yes app where you can verify that you have been vaccinated. And I've used that. I went into Starbucks and they were like, hey, I wanted to sit down. Right. And they were like, can you prove that you're vaccinated? I'm like, yep, here's my ID. Here's my Vax Yes. <laughs> Yay. And boom, I, we encourage everyone to do that. But it's getting scarier, and uh, there was an individual. As a matter of fact, speaking of that, there was an individual. I tried to squeeze some fun current events in here, uh, although it's little. Are you going for the guy with the arm? (laughs) No, no. Tell me about that. (laughs) Oh, there was a guy who went in for the vaccine Mm -hmm. with a fake arm. Oh, for God's sake! (laughs) And the doctor, you know, the person touched his arm and was like, "It didn't feel right." Yeah. So he went to the trouble of like. Put an arm I just in a don't sleeve. understand people. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I think I can even top that. So okay. this is another one of these crazy passengers on an airplane. Oh no! So I guess someone's flying American Airlines, and they had a mask, but the mask was a woman's thong. Oh right! Uh, yes, <laughs> I did hear about that one. And uh, he was—he called it a, a way of protest, and of course he yes. was escorted off the plane. And people are just crazy. I mean, you know, you have football players. As a matter of fact, the NFL 
there was supposed to be three games to be played today, right? Which have been scrapped. Yep. They are going to be, they'll be moved to Monday and Tuesday yeah, yeah. because twenty or some odd players of each yeah. team have uh, contracted COVID nineteen. Yay! Yay for the NFL! Thank yeah. you. Thank you for doing. Of the course, right they thing. had to be dragged and screamed into doing it because it was yeah. very yeah. very last minute. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll ask one last, um, I guess, question to sort of wrap up the current events. Um, mm. For this year, I mean, has this year been sort of a waste? I mean, you know, obviously, theater is still not you know. like not like last year. Nothing happened last year right. after after March. I was in a show at the Magic Theater, which had to close a week early in right. March when everything hit, and then there was nothing uh, live mm-hmm. right. uh, for basically eighteen months after that. Yeah. Um, now, um, various online Zoom type theater projects have gotten yeah. going in that right. time. My right. friend James Carpenter runs a group first called, I think, Thursdays at 7, now called Actors Reading Collective. Yep. Uh, and they're reading plays pretty much one a week. Um, uh, it's a large, diverse group uh, uh, doing very well. But I did it for a while myself. I, I just uh, I, I didn't think it was real theater and it yeah. wasn't real film either so I, th- I think it sort of fell in between it just wasn't to my taste and i wanted to wait until i could be in the same room with an audience yeah and uh, and and doing what i'm trained to do you know which is tell a story to to an audience in their presence yeah a live audience yeah mm-hmm. i would say and 20- that finally started to happen you know at the end of this summer right yeah right honestly think that 2021 it may have been a time for lot theater to realize the reality of you know where we're at right now mm-hmm. to get the protocol set you know to have individuals you know we'll we'll know what to do for testing we know how to treat the audience right. we know how to do these regulations we're, we're learning yeah there's still shows canceling you you hear about a show that's about to open and then they're mm-hmm. like nope we're, yeah yeah well, we live in a period of great uncertainty and we all just have to Roll with that punch, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And with that, let's get an origin story. Uh, Julian Lopez uh, Marias. Marias, Marias, yeah. (laughs) So, um, Franco, Spain. I mean, of course, you grew up in the 50s. Uh, Were you born in Spain? I was born in Rhode Island, but uh, we went, we'd go to Spain. My father was a university professor, Mm. and he had a sabbatical year every seven years. So we'd go to Spain for those, and in between, we'd often go for the summer. So mm-hmm. I'd, been to Sp- I'd been to Spain, to Europe, six separate times by the time I was 16. Yeah, yeah. How was growing up in, you know, when I think Rhode Island, I think Providence. I don't even know of any other city. <laughs> yes, it, it was. So, it's so tiny. Yeah. Was it Providence? Yes, it was Providence, because my father taught at Brown University. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, how was growing up there? I mean, did you enjoy it? I mean, did you, did you have siblings? Uh, yes, I have an older brother and older sister. Uh, my older brother lives in New York and is a telecommunications executive. Uh, my sister followed the sort of family business. She became a university professor in her own right. She's now retired, mm. uh, what they call emerita. Oh, nice. Um, and uh, her specialty is uh, the relationship between Spanish and Arabic uh, ah. as it played out uh, in the Moorish period, you know, from uh, 
well, from uh, the Moorish invasion of Rome in about, uh, sorry, of, of southern Spain in the 7th or 8th century, mm -hmm. uh, oh, maybe, all yeah. the way through the Renaissance. Wow, wow. Sounds like a family of academia. <coughs> it is a very academic family, yes. And, and the sort of the assumption was we were all going to be teachers. And, of course, I am a teacher, too, although uh, my, my greatest... Uh, love is theater production, but mm. uh, we, we're all sort of natural teachers, I think, in, uh, in, in my family. My mother also was a teacher of Spanish and French at a, a private women's school, girls' school. Wow, very, very cool. Yeah. How did, um, I mean, you could have just been a teacher. I'm, I'm hoping that you didn't disappoint your family. It's like, oh, no, he's just he's going to go into acting. There was some, there was some resistance, but once... The, the story is this, actually, that mm. um, my, my parents were fine with my pursuing theater as mm -hmm. long as I got the credentials. So <laughs> sure. they would have liked me to get a Ph.D., as my sister has, uh, uh, but they settled for the Master of Fine Arts that I eventually got from uh, Carnegie Mellon mm -hmm. in, in directing. But, you know, they always assumed that, well, I could always fall back on teaching. Mm -hmm. um, they were a, a little dodgy, I think, about whether I could make it in the professional theater. Uh, then in 1979, when I was 32, I had directed a production of Shakespeare's Pericles for the old Berkeley Shakespeare Festival, which mm -hmm. is now has become Cal Shakes. Um, and it was a very successful production, and the the Modern Language Association every year has a national conference, and that year it happened to be at the Hilton in San Francisco. Mm. And uh, someone uh, recommended that production to the board of the uh, MLA, and uh, we were invited to perform it at the convention. Wow. <laughs> Uh, one of our actors, John Vickery, had uh, gone to school in England. It was a cast of nine. But I was able to reassemble everybody else. I played the roles that he had played. And we sort of built this makeshift stage uh, in a ballroom at the Hilton and did a performance for the, for the MLA. And hmm. I think what really turned the trick was that my mother and father were there with all of their colleagues from all over the country mm -hmm. in uh, in modern languages and literature and saw my work and it was you know a, a great success and i think at that point here i am 32 <laughs> years old i think they finally <laughs> decided okay he belongs in this profession sure no uh, it's they it were always <coughs> supportive but after that they were really behind me i think no 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 that, no that is awesome when i think of and it sounds like the group recognize as as we all recognize Shakespeare is not just a play or a series of play written by William Shakespeare but it's also a sort of I look at it as a sort of a uh, a transition point between old English language mm -hmm. and the modern language I mean what Shakespeare was doing was sort of modernizing even the language during his time wouldn't you agree? yeah I, I, when I teach Shakespeare I ask my students mm -hmm. okay what language is this that Shakespeare yes, you know, yeah. Yeah. and they yes. say Old English and I say no really? actually Old English is Anglo-Saxon it goes back to Beowulf you right. know yes. so you're about 800 years off and then the next one is always then they say middle, middle okay English. it's Middle English right. well no Middle English is Chaucer that's yep. about 200 years <laughs> earlier right 
Shakespeare is early modern English. Mm-hmm. It's our language. Right, now, there's much. some archaisms in it, and there's some unfamiliar words and ways of expression, but anybody who speaks modern English should be able to understand Shakespeare. Yep. And that's always been sort of my core principle, mm-hmm. and that I think the, the primary responsibility of anyone who performs uh, or produces Shakespeare is to make it coherent and relatable to a modern audience. And I think Mm -hmm. it can be, you know, without changing language or without uh, using tricks. Mm -hmm. Uh, 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 There is now a whole movement, I think, fostered partly by the Oregon Shakespeare Festival to rewrite uh, the plays and... and, uh, um, Norman has some experience with this because he did a this production summer. this summer of, uh, of, Pericles. Uh, of Pericles that was yep. rewritten by the playwright uh, uh, Ellen McLaughlin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've seen, I mean, I've, I've seen bits of this, and, and my main response to it is you don't need to do that. Right. You, know? you, don't, you can't improve on it. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and you're going to lose something by yeah. cutting it or flipping it around. <coughs> Yeah, I'd always think, I mean, you know, when we think of, I guess, air quotes, high art, yeah. mm-hmm. we think of the opera, mm-hmm. or we think of, you know, there are types of jazz which are really unrecognizable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like John Coltrane will do, or Sonny Rollins would do some sort of, you know, like jazz where you, you don't even know where the melody is. Not right. easily right. accessible exactly. to... <clears throat> exactly, and may, someone, some may think that Shakespeare is high art, although it shouldn't mm-hmm. be, I mean... The, I, I'll think that the job to be done for any production doing Shakespeare is to do it the way without changing the language of Shakespeare, mm-hmm. but still make it relatable, which yeah. is just like it understanding was originally what the language for the is. Masses. Yes. Yeah. My feeling about Shakespeare has always been Shakespeare is just fine right? the way it is. He knew what he was doing, um, and... Every one of the plays, whether it's Julius Caesar, you know, which you could say has a kind of direct Mm -hmm. uh, historical parallels to Mm -hmm. things in our own age or something, you know, completely cut off from... Anything we know, like let's say Love's Labor's Lost. Yeah. Uh-huh. I was going to uh, say Titus Andronicus. Well, cut <laughs> off. Yeah. 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 Oh, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't need an excuse yeah. to do Shakespeare. Shakespeare will speak to the modern ear, the modern mind, the mm-hmm. modern sensibility just fine mm-hmm. if yep. it's done with respect to what Shakespeare was actually doing, yep. which yeah. was writing gorgeous language. Uh, but more important, in the service of a an amazing grasp of character. I sometimes mm-hmm. tell my students, after Shakespeare, I don't think anyone else came close to creating characters of the complexity and richness of Shakespeare's characters until Chekhov, which is right. 300 years later, mm-hmm. yeah. in, in, end of the 19th century. Yeah. yeah. When I think, because you, Norman, you'll often talk about when you examine a Shakespearean script, even if you've done it several times before, you'll still go through the lines and see, okay, what was, what, what is the meaning and what's happening here, and right. maybe you'll do a little bit of history or whatever. What and is I, the action of it? Yeah. <clears throat> right, exactly. And I think, I think it was Don Monique Williams, she talked about how she was um, afraid of Shakespeare. She was talking about her oh, time right, as an yeah. actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, now she's a director. She's doing great work at the Aurora Theater. But I imagine people are a bit intimidated because it's not like picking up a script and just going for it. <clears throat> you have to 
examine the uh, what they call it the iamic pentameter. Yeah. You know. All yeah. of them. Yeah. The, the, the rhythms. But you need to do that with any script. Every script has rhythms. Yeah. And not just the rhythm, but also what is actually being said. You yeah. Know? Yes. You know, what's... Um, but there's a, there's a whole tr- a tendency right now with, these, with some new scripts. Like, I'm directing a script for Monday Night Playroom, which mm-hmm. is coming up Monday. And, and I talked to the playwright. And he said, I'm just worried that... I'm like, no, your pacing on this is so good that every time there's sort of a question brought up in the, uh, in the eye and the ear of the m- audience... It gets answered quickly enough, or we move on in such a way that you've created an emotional response in the audience, and now you've used that to move to your next beat. I'm like, dude, I'm not asking you to change anything. I I love it the way it is, but you have to recognize that. And I said, the challenge in our one rehearsal is going to be to make sure that the actors pay attention to the pacing. Yeah. Because it'll fall apart without that. I think there is a movement of trying to modernize everything, Mm -hmm. and even worse... Uh, do you have to get that one, um, Julio? Okay. Um, the, I think there's a um, a movement to modernize everything and also to make things accessible to everyone of mm-hmm. every um, race, uh, color, orientation, that sort of stuff. Well, there's that, but I'm saying the opposite. That, like with this script, he's intentionally creating a culture that you have to get into sure. to appreciate but I think he creates a roadmap, and that's what mm-hmm. I think any good script does. Yeah. It gives you a roadmap where you know, oh, if we do this script the way the playwright intended, we're yeah. going to tell this story and the audience is going to get it. Right. But with Shakespeare, I think Shakespeare does that as well, where yeah. you don't need to. It's, it is accessible. Oh, like yeah. We had Radhika Rao on, and she was doing, I think it was um, sh- um, Hamlet. Mm-hmm. She was a grave digger. Grave digger, right, right. Hamlet? Yeah, yeah. Hamlet. Okay, yeah. I, I did get it right. Where um, it's not, you know, it's not... Um, it's not set on a particular race. I mean, you can right. do a historical piece where, you know, let's say you don't want Julius Caesar to be. Uh, it'll be experimental if, let's say, Julius Caesar were anything other than, I don't know, a white person or something well, like that. Well, if I can break sure, in for please. a moment. Um, my wife and I were recently watching a Royal Shakespeare uh, production from England about mm. three years ago of an all black wow. uh, Julius Caesar set in some unnamed African country. Right. And it was brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. It made perfect sense. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Because, you know, uh, Sha- when, in, when he's writing uh, particularly Julius Caesar, it's also true of Coriolanus and right. one or two other plays, Shakespeare is writing about something that didn't exist in his world at the time, which right. is a democracy or an att- right. a republic, an attempt yeah. at a democracy. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. He, had, he, he had good historical sources, largely Plutarch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from that, he asked himself questions about how does a republic work and how does it fail? Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, and uh, we've certainly seen that story play out many times over history, right. including in African nations since about you know yep. the 1960s. Sure. Mm-hmm. So it made perfect sense. It was a, it was an inspired choice, but it was yeah. absolutely faithful to Shakespeare. They didn't feel they had to change any lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they simply let these black actors speaking the lines mm-hmm. speak for themselves and you draw your own conclusions. Yeah, the script, Shakespeare's scripts, whether, what, no matter what play it is, just focus on the actions of the individuals, exactly. not necessarily yeah. the race or whatever. And you, you remind me, 
because we think of England as the same as America, but no, it's a monarchy. It's a monarchy, yeah. And it was most definitely a monarchy during Shakespeare's oh, time. Yeah. Oh, Much yeah. more so than now. Yeah. And <laughs> it reminds me that Shakespeare was a, a political writer. He's writing to... I'll, so? I, I, I'll caution you on that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, politics enters into Shakespeare, but there was also under Elizabeth, a very well-developed secret police. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and there was a lot of political peril in depicting certain things. Mm -hmm. As an example, uh, this is just a his little historical detail, oh, but yeah. the Earl of Essex, who was probably one of Elizabeth's lovers, uh, fell out of favor with the crown, and mm -hmm. he came back from a mission in Ireland attempting to overthrow the crown. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, his rebellion was firmly put down, and he mm -hmm. had his head chopped off. But in the couple of weeks when he was trying to get it going, his people commissioned Shakespeare to do a performance of Shakespeare's already existing and produced play, Richard II. Mm -hmm. The problem was that Richard II has a major scene in Act Four which depicts the deposition of a monarch, mm -hmm. specifically the stripping of his crown away from Richard by Henry Bolingbroke, who becomes Henry IV. And the company got in big trouble. They mm -hmm. were all called on the carpet, and and they could have been very severely punished. Mm -hmm. uh, they managed to sort of talk their way out of it. Said we didn't know, you know, that he was going <laughs> to try to overthrow the government. But doesn't but, that, doesn't Britain go ahead? But 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 that is a reflection of the dangerous political situation that Shakespeare lived in, mm -hmm. um, uh, which is why you see him writing plays like. Uh, Macbeth, I can say that here. I'm, yeah. I'm knocking wood <laughs> here okay. just to uh, to, to uh, avert play. the wrath of the theater gods. Right. Yes, yeah. we call it the Scottish play. Uh, write a play like that because that played to the new kings, right. James the Sixth of Scotland, who'd become James the First of England, uh, played to his concerns specifically about witchcraft, mm -hmm. which was a major hang-up of his. Um, so, uh, you know, it's good to stay on the good side of the authorities. Right. Yeah. And uh, a lot of Shakespeare's artistic choices uh, are probably not based on that, but keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. oh, uh, absolutely. Because uh, there was certainly danger in speaking uh, political, politically radical ideas mm -hmm. in yeah. Elizabethan well, I'm sure I'm sure Shakespeare wanted to, um, I'm not going to say kiss up, but you know, he wanted to appease <laughs> well, the establishment. Stay yeah. on good terms. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> For financial head. reasons, yeah. <laughs> But, but, you know, I think about Richard III, mm -hmm. which is very, I mean, that's uh, that could be controversial because there are historians who are like, Richard III was not like that at well, all. Well, not at that time. You see, the, uh, once again, uh, well, it was, the, it was the Tudors who were running right. England. Right. The Tudors <coughs> were the family that had overthrown Richard. So right. if you, if you uh, depict Richard as a villain, as, yeah. for instance, Sir Thomas More had, you know, 80 years <coughs> earlier, <coughs> you're on pretty safe ground right. there. You're mm -hmm. not going to get uh, in trouble with the government for saying, boy, that last uh, Plantagenet king, Richard, was mm -hmm. a 
bad state of affairs and we're well rid of him. Right. Mm-hmm. That was a very safe thing to do. Yeah. The controversy about, hey, Richard wasn't so bad is more of a modern thing yep. uh, looking back. Oh, to be historically accurate. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand. Oh, but yeah. there's so many wonderful playwrights who've done that. I mean, Amadeus, I, I mentioned yeah, regularly. Mo- Mozart, yeah. Because yeah. it, well, it is Mozart, but not the story. I mean, the story is really, you know, a modern playwright playing with this idea and, and exploring some themes. And, you know, if you got mad about, well, the historical accuracy of this, you'd be wasting your time. Yeah. You're playing you to your audience. The musical Hamp- Hamilton. Yeah. Yeah. You play to the audience. You've got an audience who's hungry for this. They're responsive to it. And you get to say something to them. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Let me ask you a personal question. Why does, why does theater, why did theater mean so much to you? Because you really could have did what you know your folks wanted you to do, just go into the academics. And why specifically Shakespeare? Well, when I was about 10 or 11, my parents started taking me to the Brown University Drama Society. Mm. It was called the Sock and Buskin, which is mm. a very old-fashioned way of saying, you know, that that's... That is the, uh, the, the the garb of the stage actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and every year they did a Shakespeare play. So uh, the first two plays I remember seeing uh, were Sock and Buskin productions of The Tempest and Twelfth Night. Mm-hmm. And I was bit. Mm-hmm. I just loved Shakespeare from that time on. When I got to uh, high school... I think um, we read Julius Caesar, I think, in freshman year of high school, and I got together uh, a couple of, uh, I did several things. One is I was also studying Latin, so I translated Mark Antony's <laughs> speech wow. back wow. into the original. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Now, you were 15, 16? Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I was about 15. Wow. I still remember, amici romani kiwes mihi aures vestras applicate. <laughs> Venio caesarem humatum non eum laudatum. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. Uh, So that's how bit I was. And uh, I got together two of my friends, and we performed a scene from The Tempest in Mm. English class. Mm -hmm. The the scene with Caliban, uh, Stefano, and... Oh, Trinculo. Stefano and Trinculo. So, uh, you know, I was away uh, already, and... uh, Nevertheless, uh, I also um, my school was classical high school in Providence, Rhode Island, which was a public school, but like Boston Latin, had a, a very strong grounding in the classics. So I had four years of Latin in mm-hmm. high school. Uh, and by the time I got to college, I had decided I wanted to be an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and I took uh, Latin and Greek courses in college, sort of in pursuit of that. But the other thing that happened was that now I was away from home. Um, I got, uh, there was uh, the, the school drama society. It was mm-hmm. not for credit. This is a Swarthmore College, which is a small Quaker college outside of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. was old-fashioned in those right. days yeah. in that there were no credit courses in the arts. Um, actually, toward the end, in my, in my senior year, I was on a, a, an advisory panel to a commission to start creating uh-huh. uh, arts curriculum mm-hmm. at the college, which then happened after I left. Um, but uh, 
uh, in sophomore year, I think in college, I appeared in five shows. Mm. <laughs> wow! In my spare time, which right. basically meant mm. taking money, taking time away from studying my actual yeah. classes. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, and uh, by the end of my sophomore year, I said, "Okay, I think this is going to be my profession." Yeah. Mm-hmm. So mm. I was nineteen, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. When I hear your story, I think of Dead Poet Society, where you know you have an Ivy League school or college, mm. and there's a uh, arts professor. Robin mm. Williams, yeah. and, sure. you know, encouraging young men to... It's actually a private school, I think, not a college at all. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. It's a, it's a right, there private you go. high school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think about that. Now, th- you were a teenager, or no, I think you were in your 20s in the 60s. I mean, did you get into the hippie thing? Did that draw you? Uh, I remember once I was... Uh, I'd just done a season of Shakespeare in Colorado, and I was hitchhiking through Wyoming, and mm-hmm. this couple picked me up, and I was sitting in the back in, in, you know, trying to get to Casper or something. And uh, the 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 wife, who was not much older than me, I think, sort of leaned over the the front seat and uh-huh. looked at me and said, "Are you a hippie?" <laughs> <laughs> and the answer is no. I was never really a hippie, but okay. uh, you know, but uh, I had I had a certain amount of sympathy. Mm-hmm. I remember. Um, at the end of one of those Colorado seasons coming out to San Francisco, and it was 1967, mm. and I visited the Haight-Ashbury. Oh, know, it geez. Was, wow. It was summer of love. Yeah. It was funny because I'd just been doing Titus Andronicus, which is <laughs> this, you know, is about as far from the summer of love as you can get. Right. Um, but, um, <clears throat> I, I, you know, I was very taken with it. But, no, mm. I didn't want to turn on, tune in, and drop out. I still wasn't doing drugs at that at ah. that time. Mm-hmm. I made up for it later. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, you eventually made the Bay your home. I mean, I know that yeah. you visited, but uh, you came out, I, th- I think you said in 76? 73. 73. Actually, okay. I moved here for good. I'd been, uh, ever since the late 60s, I'd been coming out, you know, for mm-hmm. a few days at a time, usually in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, because first I was doing Colorado, and then in 70, 71, 72, I was working at Ashland. And I'd always come through the Bay sure, Area. Yeah. Sure. So I really came to like the Bay Area and uh, moved here in 73. Uh, hung out at the beach a great deal. Uh-huh. <laughs> Is that right? Ocean Beach? Uh, no, usually the nude beaches. Beach. Oh, like, okay, uh, there you d- go. Devil's Slide and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, uh, Baker? Muir Beach. Oh, Muir. Baker Beach, Muir Beach, yeah. I just went for the California lifestyle yeah, completely. Yeah. And tried to get an acting uh, career going and... Then a little after that, a directing career as well. Yeah, and you also got into teaching as well. How did, uh, did you get into teaching? Uh, I, after I'd been, af- I'd, I'd taught some private students, I think. I'd, I'd, uh, around 76, 77, I'd advertised a class in Shakespeare verse. Mm-hmm. And a couple of my students talked to, uh, talked to people they knew. And Robert Woodruff, who at that time was kind of a force in the early Eureka Theater and uh-huh. went on to become a New York director, right. uh, invited me to direct a show at um, the very first uh, Bay Area Playwrights Festival. Oh, yeah. Wow. Which was 76 or 7. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that led to another offer. So that was how my directing career got started. Uh, my acting career uh, really... At the end of my last season at uh, 
Ashland, excuse me, at Boulder, Colorado, oh, in 73. Oh. I was newly married, and my wife and I had no place to go, so we came out here because uh, the woman who was running uh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, oh, uh, Jane Montgomery, uh, invited me to come and because uh, I'd auditioned for her. Mm-hmm. She said, I don't have anything for you, but you can be an understudy. I'll give you a job in the box office. I'll mm-hmm. give you a job uh, doing the wardrobe, you mm-hmm. know, taking, okay. the, taking the laundry twice what, what a week. What theater was this? Marin this theater, was, right? No, no. Oh. This was playing at the Little Fox Theater on Pacific Avenue. Okay. And it ran for six years. Wow. Hmm. It was uh, this phenomenon. Uh-huh. Uh, it had been directed by Lee Sankowicz, who right. was a, a, Marine, a Marin director. It had first played in Marin, and then it found a home oh. in uh, North <coughs> Beach. So mm-hmm. I worked in North Beach f- for this theater for uh, two, three, four years, That's and eventually wonderful. got my equity card oh, right on. from mm-hmm. then and f- from doing a production called P.S. Your Cat is Dead. Oh, by I love that. James Kirkwood. By James Kirkwood, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the 75 was the year that I finally joined the union. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like equity because, you know, we've had a lot of guests come on to say, oh, equity, I have to leave the Bay Area to, you know, to be a, st- a steady equity actor. It's, it sounds like it has not deterred you at all. No, my feeling is most of the people, most of the professional actors I know joined equity probably in their late 20s, as I did. Mm-hmm. And there comes a point at which you say, you know, my talents are such, uh, I th- the, what I have to offer is such that it's not, I'm not going to give it away anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I deserve proper compensation for what I do. Even if that means I then have to turn down some uh, work on the side right. yeah. that doesn't pay that well but would give me something to work on. Right. I'm willing to give that up to say, okay, I'm now a professional actor and if you're going to use me, you're going to have to abide by yeah. the rules that the union lays down. Yeah. Mentally, does that, because we've talked about this, Norman, where an actor, we've had a lot of young actors say, oh, you know, I, I, I feel bad turning down this thing, but I'm just not getting paid enough. Yeah. But there has to be something within you that says, you know what, I'm worth something. Absolutely. And it may sound egotistical. It may even sound narcissistic. <laughs> but <laughs> Who <you> cares? <laughs> those, yeah, those are feelings. Right. <laughs> But you look at yourself as a business, as yourself, as your craft, as a business. You know, you're running a business. Yeah. And I would say even more than a business uh, because there's so many tiers. So you get paid, you know, if it was about a business, you'd be like, oh, if these people only pay me two something a week, I don't like them. These people pay me five something a week. You know, it's a balance of the art. But at the baseline, I think, and this is something I fight for all the time, you have to ask yourself if this is worth your time. If this is worthy of your time, who talked to somebody recently who's going to be doing a little show mm-hmm. and it's not going to pay a lot, but they're happy to be in the process and they feel respected. Mm-hmm. I can't feel respected when I know that you're spending a ton of money on this building and a ton of money on this set and the designers and everybody else, but you want to pay a pittance to the actors. Yeah. No, I, I, I can't do that. Right, right, exactly. And those are the companies that actually have money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm seeing that reflected now in, in Shakespeare production, yeah. which is that uh, companies like California Shakespeare, you know, now this is an organization I used to work for, so mm-hmm. you know, take what I say with a grain of salt as, as, as a disgruntled former employee, <laughs> but uh, I think they're a lot more interested in sort of creating spectacular sets and so forth than actually hiring the number of actors 
that it takes to play a Shakespeare play coherently. Right. Yeah. Uh, everybody now wants to do. I can do the. I can do Hamlet with five actors. Well, right. I could do it with four. You right. know. Yes, uh, exactly. Ev- everyone is striving to see h- how much it can be cut down. Richard yeah. three with three actors. Yeah, and I don't think the stories get told very clearly. Yeah, that way. I think and the it actors. And a hell of amount of pressure on the actors. Who yeah. Has to well, it does. Memorize a bunch of roles. True. Yes. Uh, they're yeah. getting the most out of their actors. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, um, audiences being asked to sort of keep in their heads, oh, he's, right. she, uh, sh- sh- she was that in that scene, but now she's something else. And, right. and while they're puzzling that out, they're, how are they supposed to listen to the actual play at the yep. same time? Yeah, I so, think. So uh, I, I, I believe this uh, current fashion, and I hope it's only a fashion for very stripped down Shakespeare, yeah. mm-hmm. is going to pass eventually. I, I think of, we didn't mention in the last podcast, the late, great Stephen Sondheim, who passed away. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think of, uh, I remember seeing two productions of Sweeney Todd, which is mm-hmm. my favorite musical. Yeah. One was the full cast production with uh, an orchestra, which I think is, you know, just gives you everything, the full power of yeah. the play. And then there was a stripped down version where they only had maybe like four or five actors. And the actors played their own instruments. Exactly. And of course, it was okay. It was ingenious and it was worth watching. But, you know, there's something to be said for telling the whole story. Right, Right, exactly. And that's what I mean by, you know, putting so much pressure on the actors. And it may be innovative, but really it's financial. I I think it's a money thing. Well, that's just been our, uh, Norman's and my uh, experience with this great expectations the playwright has a note at the beginning which he says this can be done by any number of actors down to about eight i've i've seen it done with eight i don't think it can be done with less well right. we did it with six <laughs> right yeah. and that meant yes there was tremendous pressure right on all of us um Plus a very short rehearsal time right. and, and limited budget. Yeah. So uh, a, a, a lot of uh, shortcuts had to be found, and uh, uh, a lot of things maybe could have could have been better yeah. than they yeah. were. But uh, ultimately, a lot of surprises. I think tribute to the actors. We mm-hmm. made it into a, a pretty remarkable yeah. show. No, I remember sitting there and looking at Pip, the main character, at one point, and realizing, oh wait, you're my stepson. What is that relationship? And not something that had ever been discussed in the process. And I suddenly had to realize, well, I'm sitting here on stage with you, so I have a relationship. I better, <laughs> I better figure out what I think I'm doing here. Yeah, there, yeah. Were, there was much, re- much responsibility thrown on the actors to yes. do their own background work. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, people in talkbacks, they say, you know, the thing that impresses me about you actors is how do you memorize all those lines? (laughs) Well, yes, that's a challenge. But actors feel a little bit insulted when the depth of their craft is reduced to how do you memorize lines. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're not just giving a speech, but you're yeah. actually creating characters. Yeah. yeah. And you brought up something very interesting, Julian. I mean, as a director, when you do direct, how often do you direct these days? Uh, these days, not often. Okay. Um, my, well, especially uh, these days. The, yeah, well, the, yeah, but the arc of my directing career is mostly the 80s and 90s. Got it. But when you did direct, and that's, I put a question towards both of you, because I've heard, you know, directors say well here's the script 
and you just do your own work. We're not mm -hmm. going to talk about your character, you know, and mm -hmm. you create your own character. There's some, I mean, maybe I'm still coming from the school perspective where I'm used to a director or at least me having a conversation as an actor to the director saying, hey, listen, I want to go this way with the character. And am I going the right way or the wrong way? Because I don't want to go along this road for right. you to tell me late in the rehearsal process, well, I don't know what you're doing here. Right. Now, I always thought of myself as an actor's director, and I would go with considerable depth into yeah. the characters with the actors. I'd meet with them one-on-one -on -one, There you go. Uh, and talk. Now, this is my hit on the character. What's yours? Yeah. All right, I see how, how that differs. Now let's work toward each other and see if we can find something we're both happy right. with. Uh, uh the, the kind of process we've just been through s simply didn't have time for that. Right. Yeah. And I do wonder about that. I don't know if there's a, uh, I, I'd shudder to say, laziness of the director. Or maybe the director's like, listen, that's not my job. I would never you. call Ken Kelleher lazy. No, I would not. But, I would, right. I was but he was. Like to great expectation, yeah. But others. Yeah. But he was a little overwhelmed by the technical challenges right. that the play That presented. was very yeah. much where his focus was. Is yeah. Where am I putting you on stage? How am I telling this story? How am I How lighting are we literally going to yeah. create this so you're going to a big expensive house how am i going to create that for the audience yeah. with no set but here's a question for you norman as a director is it your job to help the actor create the character or oh. is that their job oh no it's absolutely a, a collaborative process i think so uh, i i always want to start with the script mm -hmm. and then i want to acknowledge where the actor is coming at it and if they feel like they're on a on a fruitful path mm -hmm then even if it's not my understanding of it, I, as long as I can see it, I can conceive of it in that world, then I'm probably going to give them some leeway on that. Um, yeah, no, it's totally, you have to collaborate. But the collaboration to me always has to come back to the script. I've oh, been, there have been a number of times where I've worked with actors who didn't have a clue where the script was going. Hmm. And I was like, well, I'm going to let you do what you want to do you know, um, I've had a couple of times I'm where sure I've had... I'm sure you have to rein in some actors, Characters, maybe. actors who are playing famous people. Hmm. You know, the famous person appears in the script, and they get seduced by that character. And I'm like, that's not what the story is about. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we say that name, everybody's going to know who that is. So I don't need you to do that work. The script already does that work. What I need you to do is to appear on stage in this relationship. Right, exactly. It, it is one. I want to be respectful of people's time, but I'm having a wonderful time talking it's about this. So. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I, I, I am worried about hot water at some point today, so I, I okay. do have to be ready for peace. Yeah, just give me a signal to you know wrap it up. <laughs> one question for you, um, Julian. Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of Susan Evans, who ran Eastenders Repertory Company, and she we did a production. I'm looking at the poster now, Sick. Mm -hmm. um, where an actor, she had to rein in an actor. Oh. We, we've, act, we've asked this question before. Mm -hmm. I've, di I've directed her, by the way. Is that right? Okay. <laughs> Small world. You have yeah. to tell us that story <laughs> later. Later. But in any case, uh, mm -hmm. she had an issue with, and we've talked about this on the po on podcast before, where as a director, you want to encourage the actor to be creative, but not so much that they have their own little universe, like what you're saying. Yeah. Stick to the script. Right. I know you have an image of, let's say, it's Richard Nixon. Yeah, And it's exactly. like, listen, it has to fit within the script. Don't go into your own world. Right. You know. But so how do you still encourage an actor to be creative but also rein them in? But don't rein them in too much that they, you – it's like you're hitting them with a ruler. I think it's essential that the actor feels you're listening. Mm. Uh, and uh, if, if you have to stop rehearsals for 10 minutes and let them vent a little bit about, uh, mm -hmm. about the character, so be it. 
Yeah. Uh, there's nothing worse for an actor than just to sort of feel that the director is paying no attention to your needs. Yeah. Um, and um, and every na- every actor needs that. I remember when I was directing my Pericles many years ago, uh, I had mm-hmm. one of the best actors the Bay Area has ever produced, John Vickery. Mm. Uh, in a role, and he was so good that I just let him go, and I concentrated on directing everybody else. And about a week before opening, he came to me and said, "When am I going to get some direction?" <laughs> 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 everything, as far as I was concerned, everything he was doing was fine, but he needed attention. He needed feedback. He needed from the me feedback, right? To say, you know, <laughs> uh, this I like, this I don't like yeah. so quite so much. I, I had to learn that lesson because yeah. first I came in thinking I had to understand everything and make the actors fit. And then when I got those opportunities to work with people where it's like, oh, my God, you are just you're doing everything I want you to do and more that is working. And, yeah, you have to take the moment to just give them that feedback so that they don't feel like they're out. Because I did when I did Midsummer, and I'm playing Titania. I'm like, what the hell are you expecting me to do with this character? I'm really not clear on it. And we never had that conversation. But I started to find a vulnerability on stage that was me just feeling unsure where to go and trying to bring it to life, but to stay within parameters that were only in my head. And I wasn't getting any feedback from the director. Or maybe it was a little bit of a little bit quicker on this or make sure you're in your light. I mean, literally nothing more than that. And after a while, I was like, well, so that means my performance has this vulnerability that I didn't choose, but it works, and I've discovered something. Yeah, I'm, that's yeah. what I'm going to offer. And so as an actor, did you feel that you were not getting direction that, okay, well, I'm fine. They're not – because usually if I get a, a note, I'm like, damn it, I did something wrong or something. But, of course, I need the note. But um, not getting I – mean, so did the signal – you're not the type of actor that needs attention or need direction. No, I wanted it, but I was watching how much attention was being paid to so many other moments. Sure. Yeah. That I was like, wow, you're and, – and it wasn't like I didn't get attention. We would take time for these monologues, and it really was me on the stage, Oberon sort of vaguely over there somewhere because we were one of those small cast productions. Puck probably off someplace else changing into another character. So it really was nobody or nothing on stage but me. I felt like I was given the time, and there was a little bit of feedback, again, like pacing and stuff like that. But other than that, I felt like I was being allowed to explore something, so I took advantage of it. I'm like, I'm going to make sure that I really try to ground this in the way I think it needs to be ground, and I'm going to pay attention to these new things that are coming up that I didn't expect. Yeah. I think when the director allows you to play, I mean, and there have been times where I've been on stage and I'm like, let's say, doing a monologue or I'm taking a lot of screen time and I'm not getting any direction. I'm like, okay, well, obviously I haven't done it. I would have heard by now yeah. you <laughs> I'm in hope. the wrong yes. direction. <laughs> but I've had the experience from the other end, too, as mm-hmm. an actor mm-hmm. of try, trying to fight a director. Mm-hmm. Right. And I had a, a, a couple of eye-opening experiences. At least one of them was with uh, Tony, Tony Taccone. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing a show, and, and, and he was trying to push the character, and I didn't. that's not the where I wanted to take the character, and I was mm-hmm. sort of resisting. And after a while, I sort of had a moment where this click happened, and I said, he's trying to make your performance good. He's trying to help you. He's trying to right. make... Why don't you trust him <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. and give it over to him 
And uh, b- because uh, as a director, that is what I would want an actor to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I sort of surrendered. I went his way. It was better. And I had the same oh. uh, same experience with uh, Stephen Wadsworth in a, mm. in a play some years ago. That, that, that I wanted to take it this way. He said, no, no. He said, I'm going to move it. It was a character that was kind, it was easy to play as a villain. So I was playing him as a, as a villain. And mm. he said, no, you know, try to really find out the vulnerability of this character mm-hmm. yeah. and why why he's acting in the way he did and when i when i went with that character was richer mm-hmm. yeah it reminds me so much of um i stage manage uh, othello which mm-hmm. was yes. done by the um gorilla shakespeare company uh-huh. and we had a guy um i guess i can name his name uh jack halton and I know, I know Jack. Yeah, yeah. I'm been trying to get him. I don't, I don't know where he is these days. He's just magnificent. But he had a young director, and I had the feeling that Jack felt I know Iago way better mm-hmm. than you do. <laughs> yeah. And so he was fighting the director, and mm-hmm. you know, and you know, I get, I could see him rolling his eyes. You know, yeah. when the director's like, "Well, right. I want to go here," and of course, the director wanted to focus on direction and just, sure. you know, setting the stage or whatever, and. Um, it, I, I'm not going to get into you know what happened afterwards, mm. but it, it, it did not resolve itself very well. Uh, uh, but in any case, I- things like that happen. You know, those things have to be worked out. You yes. know, the, uh, there has to be flexibility on both sides. Yes, yes, exactly, and respect for both sides. I yeah. mean, you know. Um, well, and I've learned I've learned over the years to let go of those precious ideas that I have in my head as mm-hmm. a director when it's clearly not working. Mm-hmm. I can blame the actor for it not working if I want to do that, but if I but don't make an adjustment. The audience isn't going to go, oh, gosh, what a beautiful production. But the poor director is saddled with that bad actor. They're going to go, no, that scene sucks. That's Don Rumsfeld would have said, you go to war with the actors you have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Recording Donald Rumsfeld on a theater, <laughs> theater podcast. <laughs> Crazy. But, yeah, and, and get back on the actor. The actor may not even realize that it doesn't work because yeah. the actor is in his or her own head. Yeah. And they don't see the full story. No, I mean, no, the full no. picture of what's happening on, on the that, stage. That's your job. <laughs> um, you were a two-day winner of Jeopardy. You want yeah. to talk about that? Uh, <laughs> oh, it's just um, – I it took me three tries. The first time they, – they, you go to uh, – a studio in LA and mm-hmm. they take in a group of people they sit you down and do a written test mm-hmm. yeah. 50 questions I think and you write out the names and then if you score X on this score nobody knew what the passing score was then they'd try you out they'd give you a little buzzer and mm-hmm. you know sort of give you a kind of a screen test mm-hmm. and the first time I passed the test but um, there was a um, there was a problem with my equity membership oh. uh, that uh, mm. that they they couldn't hire uh, right. people belonging yeah. to the performers union. Then I heard that had changed, so I went back and took the test a second time. This time I didn't pass it, mm. so I t- said it's good for one more try. So <laughs> I went the third time, uh, and and uh, was uh, was chosen for the show and. Uh, not much, not much to tell. I, uh, I, I, the first game I was up against a guy who had won four games in a row and was going for his fifth, which would have put him in the tournament of champions. And he right. was a very sharp. He was a he was a very sharp guy, mm-hmm. but uh, somehow I, I beat him out, and then had to. Uh, then they called me back the next week. Uh, I think I won two games, and then they. As I recall, they 
only they r- recorded two days a week, let's say Tuesday mm-hmm. and Wednesday, mm-hmm. five shows each day. Yeah. So uh, I, I came on the Wednesday and I won the last two games. That means I had to come back the next Thursday. So sure. I, I, I brought my wife and we flew, you know, and stayed in a nice hotel because <laughs> I knew I, at this point I had almost $15,000 in my pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lost out in the third game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I could sort of tell anecdotes about it, but yeah. it was. But it sounds know, like it was a wonderful experience. Yeah, it was great, and Alex was very nice. You, yeah. know, you only get uh. to talk to Alex for oh a minute or two at the end of each game. Right. Yeah. Uh, the late but, great Alex Trebek. Uh, oh, yes. Awesome. <laughs> no, I, to to me, uh, no one will ever. Come up to what Alex did. Right. On, uh, yeah. yeah. We, we are definitely Jeopardy. in a new era. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess the very last question: What do you? What is your take, Julian, of Bay Area theater right now? Of course, COVID is has uh, that, affected I, things. Yeah. You you can't you can't answer that question without uh, dealing with COVID. Um, but but I, prior to COVID, you know, we've been talking about gentrification. You know, people mm-hmm. are leaving, and money is more of a factor now. Where you know, a lot of local theaters they just can't afford uh, the rent anymore. Yeah, or they can't afford to pay. And we've talked about AB AB eight. Is it AB eight or AB five? Yeah, AB five. Yeah, mm-hmm. theater is always going to be challenging. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, Berkeley Rep and ACT continue to do very good challenging work Mm -hmm. Uh, they are very committed to moving toward diversity which I think is a great thing Um, uh, I have reservations about where Cal Shakes is going but I'm old-fashioned that way you Mm -hmm. know and and, uh, well especially for a place that calls itself a Shakespeare company that's the thing I don't think they really want to be a Shakespeare company they want to be a new place company but they've inherited a theater and Mm -hmm. and a uh, and, and a title yes. uh, which sort of compels them to do sh- Shakespeare. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. when they, you can see when they do Shakespeare that their heart isn't really in it. Yeah. Uh, that they're trying to do something different mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. And I think that sort of becomes a value in itself that trumps the value of, of the plays themselves. Yeah, interesting. Uh, uh, as, uh, as always, there's a lot of, you know, small theater companies struggling, every one of them, but uh, sometimes doing wonderful work. It's always been that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was that way when I was here in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, A couple of of big theaters uh, and and lots of little small ones. Uh, The the, the names change, but uh, uh, theater is always going to be challenging for its practitioners they're always going to be underpaid and desperate yeah mm-hmm. uh, and uh, um, sometimes producers take advantage of that they they sort of know that you will work for less or or under uh, less than ideal conditions sure. mm-hmm. just to have the work and that's why I am a strong supporter of actors equity yeah. Uh, because that sets standards that you have to live up to. Uh, right now, of course, what uh, working as an equity actor means is that your theater is putting out many thousands of dollars, I expect, for mm-hmm. COVID compliance. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, they have to have a full-time co- uh, COVID uh, officer. Yeah. They have to test you twice a week, and you know, uh, however big the cast is, 
multiply the cost of a test times God knows how many. Right, um, right, because not just the cast, yeah. the crew, everybody. And they all, the audiences are down. You know, a yeah. lot of people don't want to sit with a bunch of strangers, even with masks and vaccination. They, yep. you know, right. uh, they are cherry about it. So we would regard a half a house as a, as a full as a house. really good house. For, yeah. our, uh, right. f- for, for our purposes. Yeah. Um, uh, theater is going to continue. It's always going to survive w- yeah. in one form or another. Yeah, I think there will always be some young person who wants to be on stage, either mm-hmm. to discover themselves mm-hmm. or to just tell a story. Yeah. And luckily, I mean, I'm, sometimes it even surprises me, there's still an audience, even a younger yeah, There's going to be an audience who that wants, wants to, to have live. that live experience. Yeah. Yeah. So that's awesome. Thank that's, God. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All righty. Uh, let's close it up. Uh, birthdays. Shout yeah. outs. Do you want me to uh, start? <laughs> Maybe, because what did I do yeah. with my glasses? Oh, they're on my face. No. <laughs> there you go. I, I'm wearing glasses more and more, and they're on my face. Uh, birthdays. Is that right? That is. Um, so um, mostly these are theater people, mm-hmm. all but the first one, who is Rob Flamia. And I have to mention him because he married Mara and myself. We oh, were, uh, he yes. was the guy who put us together. So. I got a shout out to Ele- Elena Wright, whose birthday was yesterday. Yep, I, I think I have her. Yeah. Um, so Belinda Taylor is somebody who's no longer with us, was major force in Bay Area Theater, and mm. particularly at Theater Bay Area, the organization. Um, Eliza O'Malley was my voice teacher and actually put me in an opera. So we've been on stage together, she and I. Ah. Um, Brendan Getzel was the music director for uh, SF Shakes um, As You Like It and is just a wonderful musician in general. Rob Feeney, as uh, a guy I went to high school with, and I don't think he remembers me because he was a couple of years older, but recently, because of COVID, uh, another alum has put together a Zoom group, and they try to get together every month. I, I chop in every time I can, maybe three or four times a year, but anyway, reconnected to him. Katie Meinholt, on the other end of the spectrum, is a beautiful young actress. Um, I met with a group called Round Belly Theater, mm-hmm. and... Uh, I, I hope she is still in it because she is incredible. Melissa Loxon, wonderful uh, Filipina actress. Um, Armand Dorsey is um, one of the first actors I met where I'm like, oh, crap, I think we're competing for the same roles. <laughs> and it's so weird because we're very different people in so many ways, but same age group, black mm. guys, almost same type, but not quite. Uh, David Wesley Skillman um, was a wonderful Bay Area actor who I believe has moved back east now. Uh, Sarah Betnell was one of the first people I hired when I had Oakland Public Theater, uh, and she's been making theater back east. Judith Offer is playwright. Hey, there you go. Who um, has been on the Yay, and we supposedly next fall I will be directing her play compared to what? Compared to what? Yeah. At the Masters Theater. Yeah. Uh, Mehran Yeshuas, I'm probably mangling her name, but uh, she was one of the actors that was in the. Um, Arabian Shakespeare production of Midsummer Night's Dream. Kimberly Dooley's birthday's coming up this week. Um, the wife of Patrick Dooley runs Shotgun Players, but she has also been involved with the Berkeley Playhouse and directing on her own. Uh, Stephen Anthony Jones is there we go. definitely yeah. one of my hero, Bay Area heroes. Uh, his birthday's coming up this week. God. What's he got to be? He can't be far behind you. He's got to be got to be touching the mid-70s. He's in his 70s somewhere. Yeah, yeah. no. Um, 
Kate Kilbane um, was the person who created the music for As You Like It, but she and her husband have a group called the Kilbanes, and they actually did this beautiful show called, I believe, Breathless, um, that was did really well here and then ended up in New York. So yay for them. Uh, Mari Zeff is a local playwright, and one of his pieces will be in Monday Night Playwright, which is Playground, which Playground. is coming up this Monday. Mm -hmm. And the last one is Ron Mesa. Uh, I was only at CalArts for one year, and I met Ron Mesa, and they kept pushing him. I think of the Aesop's fable about the different schools for the animals, and so after a while, like the fish is dying because they're trying to get it to learn how to climb trees, <laughs> and you know, and the the bird is falling on its head too oh, much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, all that craziness. Ron is an amazing musical theater actor, and they kept pushing him to do Shakespeare. And he did great with Shakespeare, but I was like, why are you trying to pigeonhole him? Why are you trying to push him someplace else? Anyway, he went back to his love, and he's been doing it, and writing. I didn't realize he wrote music. So he keeps posting stuff every now and then, and I'm so happy to see that connection. <laughs> Those are my birthday kids for the week. All right, and I only have a few. Uh, Kara Harold, uh, she is a um, an actress and a filmmaker. Um, she worked. She worked. Um, she acted on Ray of Ray Raymond Ray's The Marriage of Bette and Boo, which I'm post. I'm looking at right there. And uh, she every now and then she will post something that she has going on at the um, I don't know Fringe Festival that sort of stuff. Mm. Uh, so her birthday is on the 19th. The 20th, Cynthia Lagozinski. Um, she is a, um, a veteran actress. Uh, I've done work with her uh, at the uh, Douglas Morrison Theater. We did um, Skin of Our Teeth, a uh, wonderful actress, and she was on the A for a while. Um, Heather Daly, we've had her on. She, is a, uh, she was a longtime stage manager at um, EastEnders when EastEnders was around. And let's see, uh, Judith Hoffer, we've talked about her. And the last person I have is Adam Simpson. His birthday will be on Christmas Eve. Uh, he is a long time. Um, he worked with Off Broadway West when Off Broadway West was going on. Mm. He was one of the featured actors there. That is it. Um, shows, of course, we have Monday Night Playground. Monday Night Playground. Uh, Jen LeBlanc, who was in Great Expectations with us, has a piece in. She's been doing really amazing work this uh, this season. And this uh, the theme for this uh, December show is a not, not so, so silent, silent night. Not so nice night, right? But mm -hmm. all the shows are based on songs. Hers is based on Nutcracker, a songs. beautiful piece. I didn't um, realize that. Okay, go ahead. Oh, oh, you didn't? <laughs> no. Okay. You should have known that. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were all based on songs. Or Some of them carol, carols or, or okay. yeah, Christmas songs. Um, I'm directing a piece. Eight two five cherry. Eight two five cherry. Basilio is an amazing playwright and actor. Mm -hmm. He's gotten to do both in the season, and it's always a joy to see him. Yeah, and also Linda Maya Hassan has a piece. Yes. the nativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We feature there. Yeah, and um, that one is a very weird take on the nativity, but um, mm -hmm. hopefully a lot of fun for the audience. Did you have any other shows? Um, I'm looking for the list and I can't find it. Okay. So Phil Wong actually posted, if you've got other ones, go ahead. But sure. I'm, I'm finding, Phil Wong posted a list of all the holiday shows that are up right now. Um, the Magic Lamp is being played at the Presidio Theater. Sharon Shaw is in that. Uh, it ran, it began December the 1st. It'll end December the 30th. So a sol solid month of that. A Soulful Christmas. Uh, that ends Where's tomorrow. Where is that? Lorraine the Lorraine Theater. Oh. Sean J. West is directing that. No shock to me. Right. <laughs> He's awesome. Um, so 
it is one only one night only. Well, actually, tonight and also tomorrow. I post probably it's one uh, twenty-five. So if you're listening to this at three, you could probably still see it tonight. But tomorrow will be the last show. A Christmas Carol, Central Rep Theater, that uh, began its run on the ninth. It ends on the twenty-first. Terrence Smith is in that. Yay. Um, Cinderella, the African-American Shakespeare Company. I talked about the wonderful Angel Adedokun, uh, who uh, is in the show. She is Cinderella. That ends tomorrow. So today and tomorrow are the only shows. I don't think the podcast will be op- up um, by for you to see it today. Oh, Because really? it, it runs at 3 p.m., so it's cutting it short. Uh. In any case, uh, Into the Woods, uh, that uh, ran from November the 19th, and it ends the 23rd. We've been talking about that. Anna Yoham and Mara, Mara Sotelo is in that show. The Hollow City Lights Theater, that will begin on January the 20th. It ends February the 20th. We're sort of advertising it early, and Yumi Kabori is in the show. Oh, where's this? Uh, City Lights Theater. Nice. So, um, And the last show, which will also begin January the 9th, we're sort of uh, pre-advertising uh, it, is Balak Bayan Box. Uh, Jeffrey Lowe has written that piece, and so he has that. That will be at Theater First. And nice. uh, that is it. And, of course, there are a couple of podcasts that we want to pump. Barry Graves, I talked to him to, uh, this week. He oh, wishes yeah. our, he wishes, he says hello. Mm-hmm. He has a podcast, The Black Man's Heart, so check that out. Uh, Mallory Samara, who hopefully we'll be seeing uh, sometime this week. Oh, that's right. Did we, uh, we, haven't, we haven't set a we date yet. That we're, <laughs> we're supposed to do an end of the year Right, exactly. Her, so. so in any case, uh, she and uh, the, her day job, KCBS Radio, she has a podcast called Connect the Dots, a weekly news podcast. Also, Bindlestiff Studios, they have the Fobcast exploring Filipino-American immigrant stories. So check that out. That is it. Um, Do you have any shout-outs you want to add in, Julian? Oh, just uh, uh, about we're about three days past the birthday of Howard Swain, who is a Bay Area hero of the theater. Mm -hmm. All right. And uh, coming up uh, next Friday is the birthday of my dear friend, Michael Cook, who is a stage designer, stage manager, uh, especially in the great years of the Berkeley Shakespeare Festival. Mm. Wow, wow. That is great. Uh, Julian, I hope you had a wonderful time. It was such, it's such rich information that you gave us. Thank Enjoyed you so much. Enjoyed myself. Thank you. Fantastic. Oh, let me uh, not forget, we still have jerseys. <laughs> I'll be meeting up with Scott, and Scott Munson bought one, so, and I always well, post these Well, I like that pictures. CJ did, too. I, I, I like that picture. Oh, which oh, oh, it's CJ. That's CJ, exactly yeah. right. So we do have jerseys. If you're into jerseys, we have uh, black pinstripe jerseys. Uh, we have black jerseys. We have white pinstripe jerseys, regular white jerseys. They're only $30. You can uh, hit me up. You can Venmo me the money or mm-hmm. um, PayPal me the money. It's $30, and it helps us promote and Bay we Area like cash. Theater. We'll take cash. Cash is good, too, but, you know, I want to be respectful. So um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we want to thank everyone who's been sponsoring the Yay. As of course, you can listen to the Yay on all podcast apps, the Purple Podcast app that you have on your iPhones and iPads. Also, if you're an Android user, you can use the uh, SoundCloud app or just go on SoundCloud.com and you can find us. We're also on Spotify. The A was created by theater people for theater people. If you have a show you want to advertise or if you just want to advertise yourself, let us know. Hit us up. We're on Twitter. Our official tweet feed is the A3. I'm at Red Space Clay. I'm at Hoosier Hoosier. 
And Julian, you have a, website, a website, lopezmarias.com, and we'll have a link to that. That is correct, yeah. Are you also on social media? Do you do the Twitter, Instagram I do thing? Facebook, yeah. I, uh, I'm on Facebook under my own name. Okay. So you can find Julian if you're looking for a great actor, director, teacher. You're available. Carpool. He's a great <laughs> carpool, too. All righty. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful afternoon. It's chilly. I've got my sweater on. Yeah. Uh, if we don't hear from you, we may have another podcast uh, just before uh, New Year's. Yeah. But a happy, merry Christmas, happy holidays to everybody. Happy Hanukkah to everybody. And as Norman and I always say, we've we got to find, find a better, better sign-off. Sign and we are out.